you remember when you were a baby and you were sent for walking lessons? You know, when you sat through your first classroom session where they were talking about the techniques and how you're supposed to lift your knee forward? Wait a second. I never took lessons like that. And neither did you. So it makes you wonder, why would you want to take lessons for riding your motorcycle off-road. Why not go through the same method for learning to ride your motorcycle off-road as you did when you were a kid and you learned to walk? It's a it's a trial and error. It's a school of hard knocks. You you ride, you fall, you get up and you say, okay, that didn't work. I'm going to try something else. And so goes it until you finally become the perfect off-road rider. Well, if that hasn't worked for you yet, <laughs> this episode may change your idea of what adventure training is all about. On today's episode, we're going to talk about off-road training for your adventure riding. We're also going to talk with Alan Carl, who's doing something brand new. You'll remember Alan Carl from his book, Forks. And we've got a brand new segment for you called Gems. And what we're going to do with this is we're going to feature one area per episode anywhere around the world, it could be anywhere, that is uh, has something unique about it, that's a beautiful place, has maybe a historical value, or maybe um, just a scenery value, but something really special about an area, but that's somewhat of a hidden gem. So something that you wouldn't normally come across, it's not something that's been photographed tons, it's one of these little pockets that usually only locals know. And we're going to find those through the locals that live in those areas, and we're going to let you know about them. So next time you're riding by, make a left or right and find a real gem. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. To kick things off with this episode of Adventure Motorcycle Training, we're going to talk with PSS Off-Road. That's Puget Sound Safety. And Brett Tax is one of the trainers at Puget Sound Safety. He's going to run us through what it's all about from their perspective. My name is Brett Tax. I'm with Puget Sound Safety Off-Road based out of Washington State. And I train riders for a living. It's what I do. It's what I've done for most of my adult life. So the next question is, what exactly is PSS OR? We're an off-road school. We started in uh, 1996 training riders, and the off-road program actually developed from a street program. So we train about 8,000 people a year as a school, and with the uh, the minority of that being the off-road uh, community. But people kept asking for off-road, so we added an off-road program, and then the adventure riders started coming to us going, hey, we want to... We want to do better riding off-road, so we started doing classes for the off-road people, and then that developed into um, where we have multi-day training camps for adventure riders and um, even some training tours where we actually take them up into the mountains with support and train them to ride you know, in flight, per se, so kind of uh, trial by fire. And uh, so, yeah, it's just kind of developed over the years based on what people are asking for. Our biggest thing is we're not a tour group. We're not into you know putting on rallies or anything else we focus on training people basically we train ourselves out of customers we teach them how to travel independently if whether they want to go to Colorado or whether they want to go to South Africa. And one of the things that Brett and I were talking about right from the start was the fact that even as a trainer even as a professional he continues to train all the time. 
oh, absolutely. This is this is what I do for a living. And every year I'm going to a, a writing school somewhere, either on the street or, you know, in the dirt. Uh, I've done all kinds of different schools. And, and you know, sometimes what I learn is just what I forgot. And other times it's something new. And sometimes I keep them and use the techniques or whatever's been offered to me. And other times I, I shelf them and figure they don't work for me. But it's like trying on gear. You got to try on different stuff and you keep what works for you. And sometimes down the road, you find out that you want it now, but you didn't want it back when you, you first learned it. For the average person that loves adventure riding, um, whether they're riding a Suzuki V-Strom or a KLR 650 or a KTM 1190 or, or the Yamaha Tenere, what type of training do you think they should be getting and how much do they need? Well, I, I'll just focus on the dirt side for that. And I think almost everybody should go to a class where they can get on something smaller and learn their dirt skills. Uh, in a perfect world, you know, get a dual sport, get a dirt bike and go out, spend some time on trails, get to the point where you're very comfortable in loose gravel, in mud, in um, steep hills and deep rock, you know, big chunk rock. And although in the adventure world, unless you're looking for that, it doesn't come very often. The goal is that if you're in the middle of Columbia in the mountains and the the roads washed out and you have a very narrow path to get over this huge chasm, you don't want that to be the point when it's a challenge. You want to be able to look at that and go, oh, my skills are so good that I can ride over this without any risk, without any problem. So I really encourage people to start on the small bikes and learn to get very comfortable in the loose surface, then get the big bike out and spend time on the big bike until it becomes very comfortable in these challenging conditions. And do it here in the States where you have, where you're close to home. So if you break something, you know, it's not so hard to get parts that you have, you know, medical you know, a lot of, you know, very good medical nearby. So if something does happen, you know, God forbid, you know, it does, but you know, that's the reality of riding. So, you know, like you said, you never stop, keep trying to better those skills because once you head outside the border, especially remote countries or third world countries, that's not the time to take risks. You do hear of people taking off on their adventure and uh, without any training at all. And I guess you could get away with it if you're sticking to the roads. But I think, Brett, is exactly what you just said, that these, some of these times that you're going to have the, to use the skills that you learn by taking a course are going to be unexpectedly when you come across some sort of road hazard that you didn't expect or a situation that you didn't expect. And you see that a lot. I mean, you, you often see people with a, uh, a big adventure bike that are clearly uncomfortable and they get into a situation where they'll even have trouble turning the bike around on a relatively flat dirt surface you know and that's that brings up another point you know we're, we're talking about rider training and so we assume that means on the bike and and we're riding over mud and rocks and everything else and that's how our adventure camp came out as we realized these people didn't realize how important it was to know how to fix and repair your own tire you know we changed 10 tires on our trip you know for flats or because the tires were wore out you know between the three bikes that's a lot of tire changing and if you're out in the middle of no place, calling AAA isn't an option. Uh, so you have to know how to do the mechanical stuff. And, you know, you have to have the gear. I mean, we're dealing with high-speed pavement riding, and then we're dealing with slow speed, you know, where you're getting really hot and sweaty, and so you have to have ventilation. So what kind of gear do you pick? And, you know, you can go to a catalog and open it up and load your bike up with every piece of protection possible, and it looks like a tank, but then it's so heavy you can't do anything with it. So when do you need that protection? What's actually 
usable and what's just extra weight? You know, how do you turn your bike around on a on a single track trail or if the road narrows down and you can't turn it around? You know, can you pivot on the side stand or are there other options? I mean, we've actually done winching classes and uh, rope extrication. We've done all kinds of little things uh, at rallies and, and in classes to teach people how to do this stuff. And I think those secondary skills are often forgotten. Medical. Uh, oh, I took a first aid class. Well, what did they teach you to do? Well, CPR and call 911. That's just not an option. You know, what what's your what do you do when you don't have 911? When you don't have cell service? When you're days away from anything remotely civilized or farther? So, I think a lot of times those are the skills that are forgotten for adventure riders. I love the idea of the adventure camp, but let me ask first about the small bike. When you said starting out on a small bike, everyone doesn't have a small bike necessarily or may not have one available, but let's just, let's talk about that for a second. Why start out on a small bike and what, what do they do if they don't have one? Well, the reason we start out on a small bike is you lose the intimidation factor and you lose the, the penalty for air. When you get on a big bike and you start riding it like a dirt bike, they, they don't crash like small bikes. So it's very expensive if you cause damage. The potential of you being injured riding a 600-pound bike as opposed to a 230-pound bike or a 300-pound bike is much greater. So you, you have greater risk for um, damage and cost for repair. You have greater risk for personal injury. And the fact that you're packing around that much mass makes it so much harder to learn fine motor skills that you're constantly having to hold back to keep things in control. Whereas with the small bike, you can push things a little farther. You can make errors. It's not as big a deal. You can pick up the bike all day long. Uh, falling down is just part of the game. And you, you end up with a much higher level of riding skill. And it's much easier to take that riding skill from a lighter bike and then apply it to a larger bike and go, okay, now I know how this bike feels when I'm riding across deep sand. You know, you'll talk to people and they'll say, oh, in sand, you just you add more throttle. Well, at some point, you run out of throttle. And at some point, you're going so fast, you really don't want to be there. And and I can ride on a WR450 dirt bike, and I can go out on the sand dunes and just pin it and go 50, 60 miles an hour across the sand. On a big bike, that's never going to happen. I'm going much slower. I've got panniers. I've got load. My suspension's different. My tires, I don't even have knobbies. The best knobbies available for a big bike are mediocre at best compared to you know, actual dirt bike tires that you can put on a small dual sport or on an actual dirt bike. So you're just, you're making it far more difficult to learn and to master those skills on a bigger bike. As far as a solution goes, uh, obviously one option is to buy a smaller bike. Almost everybody in, in my training course started out on a dual sport and went up and then ended up, almost everybody has an actual dirt bike in the garage now because they just, they realized on their own that that's just the best way to go. Um, as a school, we actually provide, you know, rentals. Uh, we have dirt bikes in the school. So people can come down and, and take the classes on the smaller bikes and then learn those skills and then come back and do the classes on their bigger bikes and even repeat the same classes, but on a different bike. And it's a completely different experience as soon as the bike gets larger and your traction's limited and you're the one paying the repair bill when something breaks. I've heard people talk of maybe taking a trip to Alaska or some other, the, you know, mildly long trip, and they'll own something like a, a large, one of the largest adventure bikes. And they'll talk about riding their KLR 650 because they won't take their large adventure bike. Well, I think for that should give them some sort of indication that maybe that's not 
you know, the perfect bike. But again, I get asked all the time, what do I ride? And I have no problem telling people what I ride and why I chose it. But I also like to point out to the fact that just because it's the right bike for me doesn't mean it's the right bike for them or the right bike for that trip. Um, you know, I took a, a large, you know, adventure bike, uh, or a, actually, I guess it'd be a midsize by today's standards. Um, so I brought an 800 CC adventure bike down through South America and I, in retrospect, would choose the same bike again. But my next trip is, uh, I'm planning is through Africa and I'm expecting to bring a much smaller bike, but it also has, it's much more remote. It's a lot harder to find tires. Uh, there's a lot more dirt involved. So we're going to go very light and with a very small bike comparatively. So different trip, different bike. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I commend people that recognize that before they get in there and go, oh my gosh, I brought the wrong machine. When do you progress from the smaller bike to riding your not only your adventure bike, especially for the people who like the really big bikes, but that bike loaded because I think a lot of times you hear it all too often that people don't even actually load the bike with other gear until the day they're leaving. That's clearly got to be a mistake. Oh, that's a tremendous mistake. And, uh, you know, I, it's very common for me to go out with other riders on a trip and even experience uh, riders and people that are experienced in the backwoods. And you show up and it looks like the Dr. Seuss loaded their bike. You know, they have stuff piled up on the back seat and bags and everything else just hanging off these machines. And it's like, holy cow, first of all, you don't need that stuff. And second of all, it's not going to last. We, we crossed into, we were leaving Guatemala and we came up on a, a couple out of, out of, uh, California. And one had a large, you know, uh, large displacement adventure bike and he had a sidecar and both of them loaded and his wife was on a, a mid-size adventure bike and she had, you know, a huge duffel and, you know, these huge panniers and they were going on a, I think it was a one month trip and they were just hugely, tremendously overloaded. And we turned around at our bikes and we didn't even have duffel bags strapped to our bikes. Everything fit in the panniers. And we had one trunk um, and we had both had uh, panniers on, on the bikes and nothing on the outside because of security and everything else. And that was with tent gear and sleeping gear. And we were going to be gone over four months and we had, we didn't miss anything. We had everything we needed for the trip. And I think that's one of the, the big drawbacks is people load up too much. They put too much protective gear on their bikes where it just becomes bling. It's like, do, do you really need that extra weight on the bike? And they bring way too many clothes and they bring way too much you know, stuff, but then they leave behind things like inner tubes or tools to actually change wheel bearings or head bearings on the, on the route. So they leave behind critical stuff and they bring a bunch of things they don't need. I love the Dr. Seuss analogy because <laughs> I can picture some of those bikes that you're referring to and the packs they have on. At one point, though, they're going to have to get out there with that loaded bike and, and they're going to have to train with that loaded bike. Now, do you do that in a course or is that something that somebody would do on their own after they've taken the course and, and they've got the basics down? That, that's an excellent point. Uh, so the way we've addressed that is knowing that the, the learning process is better when you the lighter you make your bike when we do things like our our adventure camps uh we bring them in and we have them leave their gear off the bikes at least we recommend it we don't require it but we recommend it just because we know if they're falling down causing extra damage that is unnecessary is just causing extra damage but then we also offer up uh, an outride one of the fallbacks we've had is people would take the camp 
we'd meet them two, three years down the road, and we'd ask them how, how things went and how their adventures were, and we'd find out they'd never done anything afterwards. And we realized, that, well, the problem they had was they didn't know anybody to ride with. We tell them, don't go ride on your own. But then they don't know anybody. So they end up not going, and then you know the dream kind of fades, and they putt around, and they keep dreaming about these trips. So we actually have a, a guided ride where we take them out with the instructors, and we have them load, we encourage them to load up their bikes. They feel what it's like fully loaded, and we take them on a, uh, a beginner route so that they get some idea of how it feels. They get out in the gravel, they build their confidence, and they can kind of you know push off to the next step. And then we also, that's also where the backcountry discovery route tours came about, where we spend a day training them and then we take them on the route and it allows them to go loaded, bring all their gear and to make a trip. But with the support of, you know, trained professional uh, adventurers and uh, guides and instructors and some sort of vehicle there. So if something happens or if they get halfway through and they go, I have way too much stuff on this bike, they can offload some of it and and kind of learn that process as opposed to the sometimes very expensive or painful, uh, you know, trial by fire unsupported. It's a great argument for even joining a local club, isn't it? You know, you go take your course and learn your skills and then go join a local club and meet up with other people that are like-minded and like-skilled. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times that works for us because a lot of the club members come through the school. So they have that thought. They've had some exposure to people that have really spent time traveling, um, both dual sport riding or adventure riding, however you want to define those travels, because I, uh, I think there is kind of different segments of the sport, you know, those that would just want to get in the mountains as opposed to those that want to travel and how you load and what you do are differently. But they have this idea that training is good. They have this idea that, hey, small steps are good. They, they don't look at you and go, ha ha, you don't have a 1200, you're riding a 650 or you're riding a 225. I've seen true adventure riders riding 225 Yamahas on their way to, you know, for six months of travel or to travel around the world and people on these huge, gigantic bikes with all this money and everything invested that never leave pavement. And, you know, you kind of go, well, who's, who's the real experienced rider? How is the bigger bike actually an upgrade? And I think that's something that we always think, well, bigger means you're upgrading to another bike or I upgraded to this. And I know a lot of riders that upgraded to something much smaller. Yeah, the irony is, I mean, we have many people on this show who have ridden small bikes, uh, you know, particularly some of the, the Honda Step-Throughs, the 110s and 90s around the world. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's not uh, it's not that you need that great big adventure bike to do the trip. You certainly need the skills, though. I'm interested in the, this adventure camp. To me, it sounds like a great idea because it's actually doing it. I mean, you've learned your basic skills and then you're getting out there and you're actually doing the, the shakedown run, as it were. Tell us more about that. Well, the Adventure Camp is, it's an evolving program because every year we look back at what people are looking for and what the industry is. It's a two-day camp. We bring them in on, uh, they come in on a Friday usually, set up camp, and then we train in a ORV park or in a an area that has controlled training environment, you know, whether it's trails or an ORV area or a park that we have. And we train them on Friday and, or on a Saturday, Sunday, and then so we do the riding stuff. We teach them how to stand up on the bike, how to walk in their body, where their feet should be, how to use traction control using their their clutch so that they're not spinning the tires all over, how to do braking, um, all these sort of things that they're going to need. And then we couple that with the the other skills that we mentioned, you know, how to change a tire, you know, how to how to build a toolkit for the road, um, 
you know, what, how, what equipment should you have on the bike and what you shouldn't have. And when I say what we should and shouldn't, it doesn't mean that you need this skid plate or you need this thing. What we look at is, Hey, let's look at the bikes, which you guys have, what we don't have and go, if you're doing uh, a gravel road trip, then this is a great skid plate. It's lightweight. It's light duty. It does what we need. Hey, if you're going to go up and do all these hard rocks and do some hardcore, you know, Baja, Mexico, then, Hey, look, here's another skid plate and here's how it mounts to the bike. Here's where it's going to fail. Here's where it's not going to fail. So that when people are out purchasing stuff, they're, they're educated and they don't just look at it and go, Hey, that's a skid plate or that's a crash bars or those are hand guards, but they can actually look at the details and go, Oh, this is what I need because it's lighter. This is what I need because it's more sturdy. And so the adventure camp, those are the, those are the kind of clinics and things that we teach people. Uh, and then the last day on a Monday, they're, you know, they're, it's usually a smaller group. They're allowed to go out and actually go on a beginner ride. And in Idaho, we went up into the mountains to some fire outlooks and around the, the reservoirs and dams. And here in Washington, we usually do it in Stradaline or near Olympia, the capital of the state. And we have a capital force, which is just a full of uh, single track, double track and gravel roads that we take them up on. See, I love the idea of this because it's like hanging out with people that you really want to be with, talking about what everybody's into, and then actually going to go out and have, you know, professionals really with you to, to point out, hey, you can do this and, and learn from that. To me, it sounds like a um, an absolutely amazing weekend. Now, do you need a, a basic training program before you come to the adventure camp? No, the adventure camp is designed to be just that. It's an entry-level program of going, hey, I, and we get a lot of people that have done long trips, they get back and they go, that could have been easier. So they end up coming with us. So you end up with uh, people that have never even ridden on grass to people that have come back from long trips and realize that they they worked harder than they needed to. And that's where the class goes. And the way the, uh, the training is organized is so that people aren't sitting in lines. That's one thing we really don't like to do is watch riders sitting in line, waiting their turn to go ride down and stop. Uh, they're all made to integrate, so riders are moving all the time. And that also means that if you're a new rider and you're doing a drill, that you're not constantly worried that somebody's watching you or uh, that you're holding up the group. And riders that are more experienced are able to up their challenge in their in the whatever the drill is and are able to push their own limits and not feeling like they're running people over or or that they're being held back by the riders. So it's a very interesting construct in the way we put things together, which is why we have these closed areas. And is the rider bringing their own bike for, for all of these? They are. Uh, so we have them bring their bikes or they can rent. Uh, we work with a company called Tour USA and, and they have adventure bikes they can rent. And there's a couple other uh, companies in the area that they can rent from if they want to fly in from a distance to do the camps. Well, that's really neat because often rental companies don't want you to ride off-road. Mind you, it's a risky proposition because you rent a motorcycle to take on a training course. And there's a very good chance you could be looking at a little bit of damage when you come back. Well, and for us, I, the reason that, that it worked so well was they realized that they actually had less damage from the bikes that were rented to our, our customers and our students than people that just rent them and go. Hmm. Uh, because we're be, they're being taught how to ride. They're being taught how to manage risk. They're being taught proper techniques so they're not falling down as much. They're not crashing. And so they saw that there was a huge advantage to this. And that's also how we ended up doing um, the, the guided tours. Um, because of that, at that same fact, they go, well, yeah, come, come take our bikes, take our people because they're coming back clean. They're coming back happy. That means customers are happy. The bikes come back less broken. And for us, uh, we get the enjoyment of, of watching somebody, you know, step into the sport and, and continue on. 
Well, that's great because that in itself is a testament uh, to the fact that we should be doing training. I mean, clearly people who are renting without doing the training um, are finding they're doing more damage than those who have done the training. I mean, that, that's a real testament for saying, hey, you should do it the right way first. Yeah. And, you know, there's no reason somebody can't do training. We have all kinds of programs. We have our dirt program with a, a 101 course. It's an introduction to dirt. We get a lot of people that are really strapped on budget that come down and just do the one-day courses on their adventure bikes. And and even the adventure camp itself, <clears throat> every year we, we look at it to see how can we control cost on this camp so we can keep the price point low that nobody's going, I, I'm not doing training because I can't afford it. We don't want to become some exclusive, you know, uh, school where you you just you have to save for a year to try to get in to come do training no we most all of our training happens in the spring because our theory is you should be in the summer and the fall you should be out riding you should be out doing your own trip our goal is to prepare you for the trip not to be the trip if that makes sense so we we work really really hard to keep that price point down and keep the training very high and we have a lot of customers come to us that have done other training and we get a lot of compliments from them about you know, what they got from us compared to other places they had been. And I think a lot of it just comes from the fact that we are trainers. That is all we do. That's that's what our program is all about. There are some people out there with a school of thought that uh, they don't take training for anything and, and they can do things on their own. Can you train and learn how to ride properly on your own? I think there are people that obviously have ridden for many years and, you know, schools didn't exist for a long time. I think the issue with that is as a as a rider or as a human, we have certain natural instincts. And most of the instincts we have that are natural are incorrect when we're on a motorcycle. Uh, if you think about this, uh, you know, the, and that happens both on the street and on the dirt. I mean, when we're when we're scared, our first instinct is to slow down. Well, if I'm on the street and I'm in a corner and I chop the throttle, the chances because of the weight distribution and the changes in traction on the pavement, I'm much more likely to slide the bike out fall down. If I'm in the dirt and you get in the mud, you get really nervous about the, the sand or the mud and you slow down. A lot of times you pitch forward, the front end dips down. And next thing you know, you're, you're eating dirt as opposed to being able to shift your weight back, get back on the throttle, manage your traction with your, your clutch to, to use these proper techniques. So if they manage to get through to figure out what works and what doesn't, it takes a lot longer to do. There's usually a lot more falling involved. There's a lot more risk involved. And I think that's also why the clientele that comes to us are not 18, 19, 20. First of all, that's not the adventure clientele in general, but also I think as we get older, we start realizing the value of learning lessons from other people as opposed to learning lessons on our own. It's a lot less expensive in the long run. It's a lot less painful, and we just don't want to get hurt anymore. It comes down to standing on other people's shoulders, sort of, doesn't it? Because why go and reinvent the wheel? Why not find out what's already been learned, the techniques that's, that have already been learned, the people who have already spent the multiple hours going down and slamming their face into the dirt to say, oh, that doesn't work. I know what seems to work in, in this situation. The other day I was just talking with Glenn Hegstead, and he mentioned that he does a training course, and he said that he learned more off the, the guy that trained him in the, in the week or something like that than in 30 years of riding. So you've, you've taken a bunch of information that people have learned through the school of hard knocks, because that's how everything is learned, through making mistakes, and avoid their mistakes by learning from them. That's what really what school is all about, isn't it? 
Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think we we even don't look at the value of the, the trainers all the way. We go, well, they've already learned through the School of Hard Knocks. But like you said, he learned more from a person in a very short period of time than he learned in a very long time on his own. And you know, on the street program, our, when we do the military training, one of our guys is an engineer. And I'll tell you, for the first three years training with him, I was sitting in the back of the classroom with a notebook scribbling like a madman. Because he was talking about traction dynamics and load forces and G-forces and all this stuff that was just, I mean, just incredible. I would never learn that on my own. And now I get to take that, simplify it, and bring it to other riders and make it usable for them. Because the more you understand your machine, the more you understand the dynamics, the more you understand why what you do works or doesn't work and how you can change that to gain better traction so you don't fall down or so you don't hurt yourself. So. I mean, education is not just about learning from those that have learned on their own, but those that have had time to do the research. I mean, that's why you have professional instructors. That's what they do. They study, they ride, they practice, they take classes. And are, are you bike specific? Do you guys, you know, subscribe to the theory that one bike is sort of the, the ultimate adventure bike? Or are you teaching people with everything across the board? Oh, everything across the board. We, we don't have any loyalty to any particular brand or model or size. Uh, like I said, for some people, the, the large bikes, the 1200s are the right bike based on what they want to do. Others, 250s are the right bike. And I've seen people travel the world on both, uh, usually something closer to the middle ground. But it really, we're not there to tell people what they need specifically. We're there to train them and provide them enough knowledge so they can decide what they need themselves. If someone's signed up for a course, they're they're planning on coming and learning maybe at the adventure camp, what skill would you say would be good for them to practice on their own in preparation for that? That's a really good question. Uh, if somebody was coming in and they said, hey, I, I need to practice before camp, I would say one is to become as comfortable as you can on the bike that you're riding to the camp. You know, put time on, put seat time in so you know where the braking points are, so you know how the bike feels, so you know where the clutch is, so you know where shifting is. So all that is very natural to you. So it's not a brand new machine. The skills we're going to focus on the most are going to be very fine motor control skills. So it's going to be overlapping, braking, and throttle. And to change the dimension, uh, we're going to be working on the clutch to work uh, so we're not spinning the tires, so we're not stalling in mud. So these are the things that we're going to be working on. So I would have them working on some maybe slow speed riding, you know, spend time in the parking lot, getting used to the weight. The problem that we have is when we tell people to practice before classes, if they go out and practice with the skills they already have and they're not correct, we're building habits that we have to break later. So, you know, that's a really tough one to say, what do you need to practice other than just know your bike, know your equipment, and make sure you come with the right riding gear. You know, come with real dirt bike boots. Don't show up with, you know, with street boots because if you fall over, we don't want a broken ankle. So I'm much more likely to describe them on what equipment to have or how to set their bike up so they have a better chance at success during the training itself. When the adventure motorcyclist arrive at your door or the average motorcyclist arrives, arrives at your door for a course, what do you find is the skill that is most often missing? That blatant thing that always sticks out. We say, oh, yeah, everybody shows up needing to do this right off the bat. Well, most of our riders are street riders, street to dirt, which means that they have two key things. One is they don't know how to manage their weight. So they have a tendency to sit too far back on the bike and they have a tendency to be planted into the seat. If they stand up, they only stand up because they saw it on the movie. 
or they saw somebody else do it in a picture. So, oh, I'm an adventure writer. I'm supposed to stand up, but they don't know why or how. So they don't do it effectively. The second thing they do is they're usually not very good with the fine motor control. They're throttle on, throttle off, brakes on, brakes off, clutch in, clutch out. And they have a tendency to spin the tire a lot. They have a tire to, uh, tendency to not brake very efficiently with the front or as well as they think they do. So for us, those are really the two keys that we have to kick off is let's get them so they're neutral and they, they hover above the bike. So they're weightless above the machine. And two, get them so that they have better control of the bike because in loose surfaces and off-road, it changes so quickly that you have to be able to adapt instantly when that surface changes. What improvements can they expect to see from when they arrive to when they leave? I'll put it down in a very simple phrase, energy conservation. What we want to do is make sure they ride with less output, that they're not as tired at the end of the day, that when they go to pick up their bike, that they have techniques they can use that require far less energy than what they're already using, that when they ride, they ride with less effort. When they're on top of the bike, that they're weightless above the bike, the bike moves free underneath them, and that they actually don't put any energy out. Um, one of the things I, I talk about, and I wrote an article for uh, ADB Moto Magazine um, on this this concept specifically, and that is I want them weightless. And what that means is that if I'm above the bike and the bike comes up and it's going to hit a bump, and the, as the bike moves into the rider, all you have to do is collapse the knees. You relax your muscle and the bike will move up into you. And then you're not actually expending any energy. If the bike drops off the other side and extends out, if you're already bent, all you have to do is relax the legs and let it fall back down. So the only time you're actually putting muscle into the work is when you're static when the bike's not moving. And it's a very interesting concept to think about, but it when you break it down, it makes sense. Brad, I want to ask you a bit of a technical question because this comes up a lot in discussions with people who are into more advanced riding. And I've seen it mentioned on forums, is the center of gravity. Now, when people talk about riding the motorcycle and they talk about their center of gravity, many people refer to a lower center of gravity when they stand on their pegs. What is the difference between sitting on the seat and sitting on the pegs? Well, actually, they're, they're true to some degree. What we're talking about is your combined mass. So the motorcycle itself, it, most of the time, the center of the motorcycle mass is somewhere around the carburation point or the fuel injection point. So if you think about where the carburetors are, are that's usually somewhere around the center mass of the bike. As a human, our center mass is, well, it's kind of center mass where most of our mass goes. Um, some of us have more than others. But <laughs> when we sit down, and you're sitting on the seat, that means all of your weight is supported the seat. So that's where your weight is connected. So the, if you take the point between you and the bike and you move those points towards each other, that's approximately where the center mass is of your combined weight. If I stand up, that means now all of my weight is not supported at my butt, it's supported at my feet. So now that's where the, the combined mass of your body and the bike go. So it goes from your foot peg to the center mass of the bike. And if you move those two points together, that's where the center mass is. So the bike itself, actually the combined center mass sits lower. Here's the other side of that equation that you didn't ask, and I'm gonna give you to you anyways. And that is, as soon as you stand off the bike, you've decreased the entire mass of the bike itself. So the bike is 600 pounds, you weigh 200 pounds, combined your 800 pounds. So every time you hit a bump, your suspension has to absorb 800 pounds of impact plus the forward velocity, all these other things, which I'm not going to go into, but we're just going to keep it simple. So you hit with 800 pounds. If I stand up and I'm free floating above the motorcycle and when it hits, I'm able to relax my knees so that I'm not putting any weight into the actual impact point, I remove 200 pounds of mass. 
It makes my suspension work much better. It means my tires stay in contact. It means I'm less likely to damage things on the motorcycle. I was going to mention often what I think of is to do with inertia. When you sit down on your bike, the the ability to, to flip your bike side to side as you're going through something is decreased simply by the inertia, but the, the actual weight that you're swinging back and forth or that has to move. And when you're standing on it, like you said, you're, you're sort of reducing that weight from the bike itself. Yeah, and that, that's true, provided you're standing properly. Because, right. uh, again, you and I both talk about that. And if you stand up and you're locked kneed, so you're now combined with a bike that you're not free floating above it. It's the same inertia, but now you've raised the center of your own center of mass. If you stay nice and relaxed, then absolutely, that's 100% correct. The bike now can respond much, much faster left and right because you've removed that upper mass. So, yeah, I, I'm... I'm in with you 100% on that. And clearly, the best way would be to have somebody who's a trainer standing there and looking at you and saying, you know what, you're not bent down, maybe, as, you, know, you know, your knees aren't bent as much as you think they are, or maybe you can change your position this way. I mean, that's got to be tremendous help. Uh, you know, even myself, I, I read this and I, you know, read and look at photos and I coach other people and I can go out and ride myself and I, I think I'm doing a certain thing and the other instructors we spend time often taking pictures of each other or videotaping each other the writing and i'll come back and look at the pictures or look at the video and go oh well that's not what i was doing <laughs> so <laughs> i'm able to like. go out <laughs> exactly so i'm able to go out and actually make corrections because you know i have the the coaching ability and now i have a way to actually feedback on myself so having the value of of knowledge is one thing but like you said the value of observation is priceless to have a professional that can stand there and go here's what here's what you're doing and here's what it actually looks like and here's what you need to do to make that better is is incredible can we talk for a minute about some of those first exercises that you're going to put people through when they arrive sure so i'll give you a a, a couple um, I'm going to start off with one of the very, very first ones we do. We do a, a bike familiarization drill where we have the motorcycle and we stand it up on, on the side or uh, on the tires, no side stand down. So it's just balanced. And we have the rider walk around the bike, holding the bike with just one hand. And they have to hold the mirror, or hold the windshield or hold the turn signal, whatever it is. And they discover that they can hold the mirror with two fingers and the bike won't fall down. The idea being that every bike has its own balance point. And as a rider, our objective is to always have that bike in its balance point. And we use our body and our mass and we move so that there's always neutrality in its balance. It reduces the amount of energy. And having this drill where riders walk around and learn that, oh my gosh, this 900-pound bike or 600-pound bike or 200-pound bike, I can hold it with one finger on a turn signal and it won't fall over if it's on the balance point. And the idea is that to instill this confidence and this knowledge through practical application and experience so that when we move into these other riding drills, they understand where where we're going and why we're explaining what we're explaining. Uh, one of the other really neat drills that we have, I mentioned that all the bikes are always moving. We try to come up with things to do this. We have a, after we've worked some on balance, you know, we've had riders standing up and we've worked on body position. We've worked on traction control, you know, with brake and with throttle. We say, we don't want the tire spinning. If you, if you spin the tire, you wear the tire out, you dig holes, you lose traction, this isn't a good thing. The more we can maintain traction, especially on a big bike, the better off we are. So we have all these, uh, a field set up and we'll put down like these little cones, little tiny gates, and they're very tightly knitted. 
And the riders have to come up into these cones. They have to stop and balance as long as they can and then find another, another gate to go to. Well, the thing is, is all the riders are doing this. So you'll have, you know, maybe 10, 15 riders out there all riding through these gates, all going in different directions. So they have to manage traction. They have to look for where they're going. They have to work on their balance. And one of the things that we get on this is a, as a side benefit is they're not thinking about the skills anymore. They're thinking about not being run over or not hitting another person. We've never had a collision. And the other thing they do is it forces them to get their eyes up and to plan ahead, which is very hard to do in isolated drill sets, but now they have a very fun activity that allows them to do it. So these are the kinds of drills that we we start off with on day one, is kind of introduction drills. For men or women, how do we know if we will benefit or if we need to take training? You got to realize I'm kind of biased on this one. I I'm know thinking that. If we're, okay. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set that up front with my answer. Uh, my thought is if we're breathing, then we would benefit. <laughs> so <laughs> to go back to myself, this is this is what I do. I've been doing this for, you know, I've been riding for well over 20 years. Um, you know, I've been a trainer, professional trainer for, um, you know, uh, what's 18 years or something like that now. And I'm still every year I search for training for myself, you know, whether it's um, a hands-on class, a street course, a dirt class, um, I'm buying books, I watch videos, every book that comes out, every video that comes out, I review it. I don't always agree with it, but I watch them, I read them, I, I take notes, and if I don't agree with it, I, I look for stuff to support my own thoughts and beliefs. And so if I'm still doing that, and this is my job, and I'm still benefiting from it, what about the people that are much more casual, that only get to ride in the summer? I, I have a 12-month riding season. So many places, that's just not an option. You go to Alaska, you're not riding 12 months. You go to Colorado, you go to you know, places in Ontario, anything north of the, the border in Canada, and, and a year-round riding season just isn't even possible. So with all my advantages, and others don't have that, I think everybody's going to benefit. And maybe another way of saying it is that, I mean, we can always benefit from learning and for anything, can't we? I mean, we can, you can always improve. You know, and you can always improve and it doesn't have to be on a motorcycle. Uh, you know, and sometimes maybe this is another thing for people to think about going, well, I, I don't have classes where I'm at or it's difficult for me to get to or I don't have a riding season. Uh, a few years back, I wanted to become much more comfortable with um, being loose on the bike when I had fear because we all man fear management is a big issue for everybody because most of the mistakes we make on a bike are generated by fear. Most accidents that occur are there's some fear related incident that's involved as well. You know, we chop the throttle, we we break too much or don't break enough. I mean, it's, and it kind of comes back to that. I took up snowboarding and. You know, strapping a piece of plywood to my feet and pitching myself up on the edge of an ice-covered cliff and launching myself over the edge, my body, I was pretty sure I was going to die. And I learned very quickly that if I looked down, I became a snowball. If I turned and I got stiff, I became a snowball. And even though I was in, in a complete terror, you know, throwing myself, you know, in a, in a, I'm sure it was at least, you know, 400 miles an hour going down this sheet of ice with these, you know, rocks and trees around – I had to stay relaxed. I had to be able to maintain thought and control what I was doing and control that fear. And because I took and made a, a cognitive connection from that learning process on the snowboard to what I did on a motorcycle, that meant that when I was on a motorcycle and I came around a corner and something was there I didn't anticipate, gravel or sand or mud if I was off-road that I wasn't expecting, that rather than having a panic instinct, 
and tensing up and doing all these sort of things that cause us trouble, I was able to remain relaxed. I was able to think through the process and apply the skills needed to get through it. And so training isn't just doesn't just stop at two wheels. There's so many different ways you can apply it back to do something and apply it back to two wheels. And one other thing that we talked about we didn't really focus on was uh, you were mentioning about the value of on-road training for your off-road riding skills. I think a lot of times what people don't think about again we going back to talking about street training is the value of street training for uh, street training for adventure bikes and one of the things that we do is that track based course it's called the advanced street skills and it's a course we have multiple levels so we have a practice session for returning students who can just practice their skills without being on a racetrack with race bikes and guys that just want to go fast they don't have any race leathers they don't have to tape off turn signals they don't have to take their knobbies off the bike and it's designed to make them better at cornering which is where most of the people are dying on the roads nowadays is in corners it's not cars brett thanks very much for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge of adventure rider training with us it was a pleasure to talk with you and i hope that your listeners were able to to gain some knowledge and inspiration from our our conversation I've been speaking with Brett Tax from PSS Off-Road. You can find a link to their off-road school in our show notes at www.adventureriderradio.com. You know Alan Carl. We've had him on here before to talk about his book, Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. Alan is a best-selling author. He's an award-winning photographer, an adventurer, a motorcyclist, and a keynote speaker as well. But now he's going to be doing something completely different. So today we're going to talk with Alan about his latest venture, which is going to take him to the silver screen, or at least the television screen. Alan, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, great to be here. Alan, I, I, you know, something comes across my desk here in the last couple of days, and it just blew me away. Of course, it's you again in the media, which you seem to be in the media a lot, which I think is great because your book is so non-traditional motorcycle adventure, and I find it really exciting that a book that sort of steps away from the, the normal trip reports into something that like what you've done with yours and then gets so much press from it and so many people are, are after it. But this is something completely different. You're now going to be filming a documentary, or at least a pilot for a documentary. Can you tell us, what is this new documentary? What is it about? And where will it be shown? So this is a documentary travel series. It's kind of an approach to doing a travel show uh, on television, you know, on one of your cable networks, you know, whether it would be like, uh, uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain, which is essentially, even though he may be food oriented, it's a travel show, or even Andrew Zimmern's new um, work, you know, the Bizarre Foods guy, but he's got a, a new program that focuses more on uh, on culture and travel. So, so the idea here is to um, continue kind of where Forks, the book, left off, and that is to travel from, you know, end to end, a country, you know, spending 30 days in a, in a different country for each episode of this travel series. Uh, except here, the difference between the other travel shows that uh, we've, we've discussed is that I'm going to be on a motorcycle. And beyond that, it's not going to be so, um, even though those other programs are unscripted, uh, this will be even less unscripted. Um, I, I mean, less less scripted than, than, than those. I mean, it's really going to happen by circumstance, which is, which is how the stories that came to life in the book Forks, you know, the whole... You know, the whole reason that that 
that story came together is uh, I'm a solo rider on a motorcycle traveling with barely understanding of the language in many of these places. And, um, and along the way, meeting people that uh, bring me into their homes or teach me a bit about their culture, their country. And that's the idea behind this show is that I'm going to travel through a country, north to south, east to west, and connect with people and not only, you know, learn and tell their stories for the viewers, but also to find out and dig in deep to what brings people all over the world joy, what, what makes them happy, and perhaps even where do they find a purpose in their lives. Something I don't think any other travel show has done. So it's not about the motorcycle journey, really. It's, it's about you getting to know people as you pass through in the motorcycle is just a means to the end. Yeah, exactly. What it is, it, to me, it's, it's the motorcycle is the vehicle. It's the, you know, it's the tool, if you will, that allows me to connect with people. Because on a motorcycle, you know, as I, as I said in the press release, you know, motorcycles, when we ride them, we're much more open and vulnerable, frankly. And we see things because of the wider perspective and we feel things, you know, the changes in temperature, uh, the weather changing, and we hear things, you know, we're not cranking up, well, at least some of us are not cranking up our uh, iPhones or iPods in the, in the uh, helmet. And we're also um, smelling things, you know, that uh, we can all know that when we're smelling through something real rich and sweet versus something that maybe we wouldn't want to be smelling too much. And that's the idea of the, the is to really bring those senses alive in this program. And that's why the motorcycle is so important. This company, QE Productions, which is from Vancouver, Canada, which I think is really neat being from Canada myself, uh, this company finds you. Why do they choose you? Well, that's a good question. You know, I've been scratching my head about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've had a, um, you know, I've had an incredible run with the original journey, traveling around the world. And then when I, um, you know, I spent, a, you know, putting together Forks was a whole other journey. And we've talked a lot about that. Mm -hmm. But that book took me uh, almost as long as the original World Rider journey itself to do it made three years to put that book together and then the the promotion of it has certainly brought a lot of visibility and and not only for the book you know part of my idea was not to focus the attention on me alan as adventure writer kind of guy but uh the reason i wanted to do the book with the recipes and all the photos and the stories more about people rather than me is that i wanted to bring the world to people's tables to show the people to show how it is a safe place it is a um, rich place. It's diverse where you can learn and grow just through travel, whether or not you're on a motorcycle. And yet, but by putting forks out like that, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, is we, are, we I, I hope that I'm able to bring to the idea that motorcycling is a lot more accessible to more people. Because if one thing that the motorcycle industry, and I'm talking the industry, you know, people like yourself that you know, build their lives and their livings from um, servicing the motorcycle market. Uh, one thing we could use is more people on motorcycles, more people that are not afraid, not only not only to afraid to ride a motorcycle, but not afraid to travel. And I think with this show, we're going to achieve that same thing, is to bring um, more people aware of the idea that you can travel to some very bizarre places. And hey, you can also enjoy motorcycle whether or not you're going to travel to china on a motorcycle that that's beyond it but but motorcycle is even in your own backyard a great way to travel 
So when QE contacted me, they said, wow, this guy's got this very successful book. They, they also had the, uh, the vision of doing a travel documentary television series that focused on um, connecting with people. And they also wanted that the host of that show to, to travel within that country on a single mode of transportation. So not flying from one place, then getting on a bus, renting a car, getting ushered by taxis. In this case, it's it's the bike, the same bike across the country, and and I think they may have en envisioned a, a car or even just you know hiring the same taxi driver for the whole entire dream. You know, wherever their concepts were going, when they found Forks and found me and the concept behind that of that connecting with people and um, there, they said, "Wow!" They they also they thought it was serendipitous. This is this is the exact guy they've been looking for. They wanted somebody. A little bit more experienced, weathered, if you will, had the experience of travel and and not just a, a random backpacker looking to uh, um, you know have a little gap year between uh, jobs or between education, you know, college and maybe their first job. So they thought, wow, this is this is somebody that really can make it happen. And they reached out to me, um, and uh, it didn't take long for me to realize that they really get it. They understand that in order to do. Um, a show like this to get that same experience that I shared in Forks, we can't have cameras always out and big lights in the faces of these local people in local villages or even just, you know, basic workers in cities that you really need to be flies on the wall, the cameras, the crew, the audio. So this is going to be a, a show with a very small crew. And as a result, you know, it's also a very, you know, going to be a very uh, we're not spending a lot of money to achieve this, yet the equipment we're using and the experience that these people have, we're, our approach is to make this very cinematic and not just, you know, cut, you know, run and gun, cut, 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 kind of like you see in traditional nonfiction or reality television. This is going to be something that is, uh, you know, when you watch it, it's going to be rich. You're really going to feel like you're in that country. And, and that's why I think they felt I could help them achieve that goal. I can't imagine that your book wasn't a huge influence for them when they because anyone who hasn't seen the book Forks, uh, um, it's it's one of those uh, jaw droppers when you open it up. I mean, like we talked about before, the production of it is incredible. But what I'm curious is is now the book Forks is all about food and travel and and the mixing and and melding that you did as you traveled around the world. Is food going to be a part of this? Are you going to be tasting different dishes? Is that is that part of the mix? Absolutely. And as I said, it's a very you know the the. The way that the show will evolve, the way, of course, the way it gets cut and edited is going to be different, but the way the journey will evolve with this crew following me is going to be very circumstance. And because food is something that we do more or less three times a day, and my goal is to, is to meet with people and, and get you know deeper inside to have them uh, share with me their life, to tell their story, that it's inevitable it's going to happen over food. And we're going to source out um, certainly interesting foods. But also, because there's a lot of food travel, or it's becoming, I guess, a little bit more uh, popular, we're also going to look for those opportunities where I may get immersed into the culture differently. Like, uh, you know, for example, in China, there's the Li River near Guilin, where um, these fishermen still fish the way they've done it for centuries, using cormorant birds uh, attached to a stick. These birds can dive, you know, deep, you know, some hundred feet. Uh, and go fishing, you know, that's how they get their, their food. But they, uh, these people in China have been doing this, you know, even though the, 
the Chinese invented the fishing reel, if you didn't know that. Um, but yet they're still using these birds to, to, to fish and uh, for them to earn an income. Uh, so I would hope that I'd have the opportunity to go out with one of these fishermen and fish with them. Or maybe the fourth generation rice farmer, you know, those beautiful terraced rice fields that you'll see somewhere in southeastern China that are just gorgeous. And, and you know, they've been tending to these terraced fields for, you know, hundreds of years to find out, you know, wow, how do they do it? Where do they find joy in that, you know, in, in what might be considered a very repetitive, monotonous kind of a, you know, work. And also, you, the, the, the Chinese are very, obviously, proud of their country, their culture. They've uh, got great Olympic athletes. And, you know, it, I remember years ago when the Olympics took place in Beijing is learning a little bit about the stories of some of the Chinese athletes and that they are just farmers from villages, of course, that have been training and training. But after the Olympics and after that competition and, you know, as new athletes come in to take over, where do they go? They go back to the farms. So I, I can imagine running in somewhere to a, an ex-Olympic athlete going back to the old traditional way of life. To me, this is fascinating, and uh, I want to share those stories. Alan, you've mentioned China there several times, and I happen to know that you're starting in China. Why there? Well, a couple reasons. You know, first of all, QE Productions actually had filmed a, a short film, doc, you know, not a documentary, but a short film um, about a year and a half ago uh, in the town of uh, the city of Ningbo and the villages uh, south of there. And that Films called Road to Ningbo. You can find it on Vimeo. It's really beautiful to give you an idea of the cinematic quality that that this uh, production team can um, can put together. But um, nonetheless, they had a little bit of experience there. Plus, the executive producer Paul Kelman has uh, offices in China as well as in Vancouver. So when it came time to decide where should we do this first documentary, well, we wanted it to be unique, of course. We wanted to shake up this whole travel television series, you know, genre. And there are not a lot of people that have actually filmed something like this in China. Why? Because China is very difficult. The government really is not uh, happy about just people winging around their country with camera crews, taking pictures and filming and talking to people at their whim. So it takes a little bit more work. You know, and there's there's people that have done things in Hong Kong and certainly probably the bigger cities. But where we're going is out into the country as well. We're going to try to go as far west as the as the government will let us. So it's a, it's challenging to to shoot in China. So we thought if we're going to come out of the gate with something to that, we want to create a lot of attention, capture the interest of people that are looking forward to seeing future episodes of this travel show. We need to come out with something fascinating that is not uh, you know how, how many people have uh, you know done oh I don't know you know you know pick your uh, pick your travel uh, site you know Italy France Spain even you know or um, even even Mexico you know it's very well done documented and uh, and while we want to go to all these kinds of places my thought was let's find something that is on the road less traveled I mean Anthony Bourdain's new show Parts Unknown, their very first launch episode was him in Myanmar, the former Burma. And, you know, 
I don't think. I think he was really one of the very first journalists to do it. A show, a rich show, where you actually talk to people, even people that are formerly prisoners of the, you know, the Myanmar uh, regime there, and uh, that was really captivating, at least for me as an audience. And I hope that by me starting, we're, we're thinking of actually starting this right at the border of North Korea, on top of it, up in uh, you know northwestern, uh, northeastern China, and then traveling uh, south towards the border of actually Myanmar. So going border to border. In a show like this, in a country that's been pretty underrepresented on um, in travel television, is uh, was the was the decision. This is April, and I know that you're planning on doing this right now. The production company already has things uh, happening and already has planning going on. And as a matter of fact, your bike is on a boat right now, headed for China. That's how that's how full on this thing is. Um, I assume that you're going to be on a plane in just a matter of weeks. When can we expect to see the pilot? Yeah, this is real. Uh, this is definitely real. I, our plan is to be in China for five to six weeks. Okay, and I, I will uh, head to China early April, and uh, we will, we will travel, do the shoot, then return to North America. And from what I understand, you know, to we're going to have more footage, more film, more stories to share than we're going to have minutes for during a show like this it's going to be an hour-long series so that gives us 40 some odd minutes before you uh, you plug in the commercial spots and talking with the crew we we expect to have a six week for the first episode to really pull the pull all the punches out you know make this thing as best as it can is to spend probably six to eight weeks we're composing all original new music to go with it uh, we're going to edit this. It's it's going to be in high res. You know, we've got 4K cameras, so we're, we've got uh, every possible um, way we can do this with a limited crew to make this uh, a, a real rich, uh, immersive kind of a program. So when will we see it? Now, right now, we don't have a network who's purchased this. We have several networks, and the the usual you know the usual suspects. I, I can't say anybody specifically, but you can imagine who would buy a travel series like this. So what we need to do is produce that probably six weeks. So figure it's going to be in August by the time this thing is, is completed. At that point, we can present it to those interested parties who may get that program on, you know, end a year or early in 2016. And I imagine there's going to be a trailer or something put on YouTube. Absolutely. In fact, we, the crew was down here in California, San Diego, near my home as we uh, packed up that motorcycle. So we've actually documented the whole um, packing up the mic, getting it to that boat, you know, the slow boat to China. And, <laughs> and we are in the midst of editing right now a micro documentary, which really is a little bit of the backstory, somewhat like the backstory you might have read in Forks, a little bit about, even though this show's not really about me, but why, as you asked, you know, why me? What's the context of this? So we wanted to bring a little context. So there is a, um, a bit that will uh, play that won't, will be on, you know, YouTube and Vimeo. Probably while we're filming, we're probably going to launch that is so people can be in anticipation so they can understand what we're trying to achieve. So you will have a little bit of a microdoc. We're going to be very active in social media to keep this thing alive and, um, and certainly tease through those months we're in negotiation um, to the, uh, to the, through social media of what's coming. Well, and all of us that are fans of both you and your book, Forks, are certainly going to be watching this one. And where can we watch the progress? Is there a website? 
Yeah, they, you know, I've got at worldrider.com, and actually if you really want to get deep into the travelogue, you can, there's a travelogue link there because it also links to my publishing uh, uh, enterprise and the, um, and, and the book site as well. But if you go to worldrider.com slash blog, I will be blogging this um, as we go uh, through China and even, you know, starting the, the journey to China. And um, as well as my uh, partners at uh, QE Productions. So it's QE, like um, quick in energy, uh, productions.ca for Canada, qeproductions.ca. There's a blog there as well that, um, that the producer will be uh, blogging. So you'll get two different perspectives if you watch both of those. Me as the, as the traveler, as the motorcyclist, as the rider, and then... Uh, the production team as technology, what's going on, what's the experience like working with Alan Carl and with the Chinese people. So go to those places. And if you go to mine, uh, there's a place to sign up for a subscription so you can get automatically emailed anytime I post some new content. And of course, uh, part of my you know, character, it's not that I am a character and I'm creating anything. I'm just being me as I was in Forks as, as I'm a photographer, you know, part of what people love so much about Forks is the photography. So I will be shooting lots of photography. And as uh, the show progresses and they are shooting me connecting with these people, you'll hardly ever see me without a camera in hand. So you'll see a lot of great images. Um, so uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's the exciting part of it is to, is to go back out on the road for me, back on the motorcycle and to get behind the lens of the camera and capture more stories, more people. And we'll have those links uh, in our show notes as well. We'll also have the uh, the YouTube video that you have up right now that tells about this trip coming up. Alan, best of luck, and we'll have to talk to you later on when this project is rolling, and uh, have fun in China. Well, listen, Jim, this has been fantastic. It's great always to come on Adventure Rider Radio and uh, talk with you again. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Alan Carl, the author of Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection, and soon to be the subject of a documentary. We're going to take a break right now, and afterwards we're going to come back with today's gem, today's secret little area that's going to be yours to discover, and I'll give you a hint. It's in the western U.S. I want to take a minute and talk about a show partner we have, audible.com. Now, the thing with Audible is you can sit and listen to a book read to you. Basically, the same thing as what you're doing when you're listening to this podcast or radio show. You're listening to someone tell you a story. Well, with the book, they hire, you know, voice actors to sit and read a book through. And the really great thing about it is, for someone like yourself, is that they have all kinds of motorcycle books on there. And we've got a great deal for you. It costs you nothing to sign up. Here's what you do. You're going to visit a URL. You're going to go to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And of course, the ARR stands for Adventure Rider Radio. And the reason you go to this URL is so that they know you've come from Adventure Rider Radio. And that way we, we get credit for it. You sign up for it. You'll have to put your credit card number in there or a credit card number in there, but they won't charge anything. You've got 30 days to get your free book, listen to it, keep it. And if you don't like it, if you don't like the program, you can cancel and it costs you nothing. They don't charge anything. They don't ask any questions. They don't do anything like that. Um, I've been an Audible listener for many, many years. I really enjoy Audible because I find that when I'm driving somewhere where I'm working on something, I can put my headphones in and uh, learn about something, really. I can listen to podcasts or I can end up listening to a, a book from Audible and it's a, it's a great way to do it. So you can sign up for nothing and no obligation. 
We get credit for it. They know you came from our show. And remember, if you don't want it, you just cancel before the 30 days, and it doesn't cost you a dime. But it's important that you go and you sign up so that they know you came from Adventure Rider Radio. So the URL, again, that you're going to is www.audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And there's a link to it in our show notes on uh, our website, adventureriderradio.com. Oh, and I forgot to say, you actually get to keep your free book. So even if you decide to cancel it, you don't want it, you keep your free book. And you, you can sit there and listen to it anytime you want. There's not a set time for you to listen to it. So head on over to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. Now, something you may not know if you don't follow us on Facebook is that we have blown past, completely blown past at this point, 100,000 downloads. That's 100,000 in nine months. That's pretty amazing. We're really pleased with it. And I want to thank you, the listener, uh, because it's people like you that have made it happen. So that's really cool and really exciting. The other thing was I wanted to remind you to drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the comment button, send us your comments, or drop by Facebook and send us a note. A lot of people have been doing it that way. It's really energizing to have all this information coming back at us. We've been getting a lot of suggestions for people to interview, and a lot of show suggestions too, which is really important because we want to hear from you, the listener, what what you would like to hear more of, or less of for that matter. And while you're there, consider clicking on the donate button. Um, you can imagine that uh, it takes quite a bit to put the show together, and we really appreciate anything you can manage to send our way. It doesn't take much from everybody who's listening to really keep the wheels rolling here. And it also allows us to get more creative, to do things, to reach out places that we wouldn't be able to otherwise if we didn't get the donations coming in. So if you feel it's worth it and you can do it, please drop by, click on the donate button, and send us something in. And we've got a brand new segment for you called Gems. And what we're going to do with this is we're going to feature one area per episode anywhere around the world, it could be anywhere, that is uh, has something unique about it. That's a beautiful place, has maybe a historical value or maybe um, just a scenery value, but something really special about an area, but that's somewhat of a hidden gem. So something that you wouldn't normally come across. It's not something that's been photographed tons. It's one of these little pockets that usually only locals know. And we're going to find those through the locals that live in those areas, and we're going to let you know about them. So the next time you're riding by, make a left or right and find a real gem. So now for the first one, our first gem, we have... Spencer Hill. Uh, I'm from Seattle, Washington, born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. Spencer, what do you have for us as far as your local gem riding area that um, may be difficult to find? Uh, my local gem riding area is the Chihuahua River Valley. So, Spencer, what is someone going to find in this special area? Uh, well, it turns from a two-lane highway that's uh, kind of very twisty, turny, real nice. And then it uh, narrows down into a one-lane highway, um, still beautiful scenery and everything like that. And then it gradually, you go across, um, I think it's Grouse Creek. Um, but it turns into single lane gravel and you think at that point, okay, the road's going to end, but it just keeps going and you, you can ride on single lane gravel for at least 45 minutes or an hour. 
And uh, about every um, two, three minutes, there's another turnoff on your left or your right to a, a dirt road or something like that. So it kind of, it progresses and you can go as far back as you want or you can turn around, you can just do the gravel part all the way to the end and uh, still have a good experience. This sounds fantastic. So is there camping available there and, and how much time, how much riding time could someone get out of it? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of camping, uh, in that area. My favorite thing is there's just dispersed camping, which is where it's sort of sanctioned campgrounds. Um, but there's no facilities. Um, and, uh, yeah, I like to go up there for a weekend during the summer or at least a couple times a year and, uh, uh, set up camp and then, uh, I'll go out riding, uh, all morning, come back, have some lunch and then go out all afternoon. And, um, you know, I see some of the same stuff, but I mean, you could, you'd be hard pressed to, to see it all in a whole weekend. Spencer, now let's get that all important secret location. It's located, uh, just West of Leavenworth, Washington in the sort of central Cascades right off highway two that runs all the way across Washington. You'd drive right by it if you didn't know it, but uh, you'd take one turn off of highway two towards Lake Wenatchee and Fish Lake. And uh, you can follow Chihuahua River Road from there about as far back into the woods as you want to go. There's a pretty endless trail system back there of forest service roads and actual, you know, single track and uh, double track, four wheel trails and stuff like that. That's uh, you could stay busy for days back there. It's actually where uh, the um, Tour Tech Rally is, uh, same general area. And the major intersection, as somebody pulls up, how are they going to know that? Yeah, this is the turn. Um, well, you're gonna if you head out towards Lake Wenatchee and Fish Lake off Highway Two. It's actually pretty well marked off Highway Two. You'll see a bunch of signs for uh, for those two lakes. And then from there, you'll see uh, it's actually pretty hard to miss. But on your way out to there, there's a a sign that says uh, Chihuahua River Road. And I've been speaking with Spencer Hill, and you can find out more about Spencer at his website, www.thegeardude.com. And that link will be in our show notes. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks very much for listening. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. I already gave you the spiel about dropping by the website. Clicking on the comment button, filling out your comments, following us on Facebook. I didn't mention Twitter. Don't forget about Twitter. Google+. Plus. I'm going to go to MySpace anymore. <laughs> no, we're not on MySpace. Hey, that's a place we're not. You know, this whole social media thing. Can it be cool to not be somewhere? We're not on MySpace. That's kind of cool. Now, you won't want to miss next week. Next week, we're going to cover some more off-road training stuff. And we got that suspension episode coming up. We're working hard on that. So keep your ears tuned to Adventure Rider Radio. Now, you ride safe. I've still got a few weeks, actually, before I'll be doing any riding at all because I broke my wrist about three and a half weeks ago. So I'm chomping at the bit here as the sun is shining. But I have been going out and starting my bike and trying to pull the clutch. And I can start to pull the clutch now. I think I'm, I'm almost ready. I wonder if you can you know, make this thing happen any faster, this whole healing process thing. 
I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Robert Schwarz from Turotech in southern Germany, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> 